This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com slash weeds for 50% off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language. Is Donald Trump in Mexico yet? I think he's on his way. Hello. Welcome to another spectacular episode of The Weeds. Uh, I'm Matthew Iglesias. With me as uh, my, my colleague Sarah Cliff. Uh, Ezra Klein's uh, email uh, away notice says that he has gone camping. Um, <laughs> Where I, is he camping? Well, he's at Burning Man. I'm going to reveal <laughs> reveal the truth. Wow. Really just, just gave it away to all our listeners. Yeah, yeah that's, that's what's going on. So if you're listening at Burning Man, maybe you'll find Ezra there. But you probably should not be listening to the weeds at Burning Man. You I don't know. But you should say hi. Uh, just just last week, some weeds listeners uh, said, said hi to me. And then they seemed sheepish about it. But really, I think everyone... I met my yoga instructor was a weeds listener. It was great. See, there you go. But then I felt embarrassed because I was terrible at yoga, but it's okay. But she's probably terrible at podcasting. (laughs) She was a fantastic yoga instructor. No, I'm sure she's wonderful. I've never heard her podcast. I'm sure she's wonderful. And frankly, I've never listened to a yoga podcast. (laughs) And and, and so anyway, I I withdraw the complaint. But we've got a great show. Uh, You know, we're going to talk about political news of the week. We're going to talk about some research into America's favorite toxic metal. <laughs> um, but first, uh, why don't you talk about pharmaceutical uh, pricing in the United States, which which Sarah has been yeah. agitating to talk about. I have. For, for months. And we had the nexus of circumstances, which was Ezra, who hates this subject, um, has, quote unquote, gone camping. People have been talking about the, uh, the EpiPen. People have been very angry about drug prices. Um, yeah. And I don't think we want to talk too much about the specifics of the EpiPen. Um, but I think it would be good to start with, like, what what was this story? What are people upset about? Yeah, so the uh, upset is kind of a story we keep hearing again this year uh, repeatedly is over a price of a drug seeming to change very quickly and without any sort of reason or logic. In this particular case, EpiPen's price has gone up about 400 percent since 2007. And, you know, it's the same product. Like, it's not changing. It's a product that's been around for ages and ages and ages, and all of a sudden, um, the Senate is now investigating why the price has gone up 400%. And it actually, when I saw, you know, Senator Chuck Grassley sent this letter basically saying, like, why have you raised these prices? And the answer to me seems pretty clear. He raised, They raised the prices because the United States does not regulate drug prices. Well, right. Well, so something that has become clear to me as a result of this controversy is that the way normal people think about the price of products is that if the price of product changes, it should be because there was an underlying quote unquote reason, right? So it's like if one ingredient in the EpiPen was like, was like dragon scales yeah. and there was a scarcity, like that that would be a good reason. But that to simply say, well, we introduced the product at a certain price, and over time, our market research has led us to believe that quadrupling the price would make us more money. That's right. like that's, that's not, not a, a very good satisfying reason. explanation. But like that's the reason they raised it, prices because they looked at it. I'm they probably have some model. They have some guys who do this kind of thing, right. and they told them if you charge way, way, way more for this, <laughs> sales will drop a little, but like revenue will soar. Right. And this is kind of like and we see the story again and again. So people who listen to the weeds probably remember um, infamous pharma bro Martin Shekreli earlier this year, last year. He had this you know generic drug that he had purchased and basically jacked up the price 5000 percent. It was a drug that wasn't used by many people. No one else was making it. And again, you know, you see if you have a monopoly on this market and you think demand is relatively inelastic for this product, 
that is the only drug that cures this disease, toxoplasmosis, then you you do some market research and you say, hey, actually, I, I can jack up this price 5,000%. So we start seeing this again and again. So, you know, to broaden out from EpiPen, I think like the thing I want to discuss is just how how drug pricing in America works. You know, what are kind of the outcomes of the ways we have decided to handle drug pricing in the United States that will make us very different from the rest of the world? Right. So in, a, in, in most countries, I should say yeah. in – in the United States, it used to be the case that there were a lot of government agencies that set prices for a lot of different kinds of things. There was a civil aeronautics board that did this for interstate plane travel. Uh, there was some commission that did it for uh, interstate trucking rates, things like that. And that's sort of all gone very out of fashion, both in the United States and in other countries. In most other countries, all other countries, some, some large set, pharmaceuticals is still done. In that basic way, the exact bureaucratic nature of it differs, right, from like the UK to Canada to the Netherlands to wherever. But in all of these countries, the feeling is that it's a question of sort of urgent national interest to make the drugs available to everybody. So there's like sufficient financial motive for companies to produce and distribute the pharmaceuticals, but then to also keep them pretty cheap. So they just cap the prices or they negotiate the yeah, prices. Yeah, they negotiate. With the and I mean, I think one of the things that's a little, they have to be willing to say no to something. So they are basically going to these negotiations. They look at a new drug that's coming on the market. Like, let's say it's like a new oncology drug that promises to extend life by a few months for a certain subset of patients. So they go into these negotiations with drug makers and they kind of look at what these drugs do. And they basically say, you know, for what you're delivering to patients, like, here's how much we'll pay. There's a back and forth, and they basically negotiate a price that – and most of these are representing national health care systems. So, again, that's one thing that makes the United States quite different is we have a very dispersed, fractured health care system. There's, like, no representative of our – that speaks for, like, American health insurance writ large. But usually you have some kind of board that says these are what are our national plan or, like, the set of plans that sell in our country. This is what they're going to pay for your drug. And they kind of hammer home a deal – And, you know, sometimes they have to say no. Sometimes they'll look at drugs and drug makers will say we want X for it. And they'll say we don't think it's worth the value. And you see, like, especially it it seems like a lot in the United Kingdom, you have um, NICE, which I don't remember the acronym, what what it stands for exactly. The National National Institute Institute for Clinical Clinical Evaluation. Maybe. Maybe. Evaluation, excellence, All right, well, experts. It's can, something with an E. It's something with an E. Um, and they've ended up in a lot of controversy because there's certain drugs, and it tends to center around cancer and oncology drugs, where they don't feel like the benefit is good enough, and they're just not going to pay what the drug makers want. But this is how basically every other developed country has decided to handle their drug policy. And the United States has decided not to do this. And I think it's, it's worth underscoring, because I, I think... A point that is lost on many uh, Americans of of all ideological stripes is that there's quite a lot of variation in how health insurance works in, in these different countries. There are countries where, you know, the government is like running medical clinics that people get care at. There's countries where the government is running a single big national health insurance program. There's countries where there are different kinds of – like in Germany, mm-hmm. there's different kinds of pools based on your employer. That There's a big variety of different systems there. But they all have this common element of negotiated, regulated prices. So – Whenever you're looking at the United States and whether it's 
you're a liberal and you're like, why do we have the most expensive health care in the world and also can't cover, you know, whatever Bernie Sanders would say. Um, <laughs> or or if you're a conservative and you're saying, oh, we've got all this big government red tape, like in every other sector of the economy, like prices fall, but, but they stick really up here. What neither of those people are telling you is that like the way they get this stuff cheaper in other countries is that a government board says it has to be cheaper. That there's like a lot of different ways. So like Singapore has what I often hear characterized as a very free market healthcare system, mm-hmm. which is built around uh, something like health savings accounts. Um, there's a lot of out-of-pocket payment for stuff. There's some state-run. It's complicated. But it, it's something you will often hear conservatives tout as a, as a more free market model. And, and it is a much more free market model to healthcare insurance. Mm-hmm. But they also have a board that sets the price of everything. And you can think there are reasons to think that might be a bad idea for the United States, but it is unquestionably true that EpiPens would be cheaper if it were legally mandatory for them to be cheaper. And the same is true, like, across the board. Mammograms would be cheaper if they had to be cheaper. And, like, we don't make healthcare services cheap because we don't have a law requiring them to be cheap. Theoretically, maybe there's some other way to make them be cheap, but, like, the way— Every place else makes them cheaper is by saying they have to be sold at lower prices. And I think this is where healthcare ends up being like a little bit different than other industries where demand for healthcare tends to be quite inelastic, where if your life kind of depends on it, there's some marginal cases where, you know, I think some services can go up or down depending on like the copays or deductibles. But for a lot of medications, like the demand tends to be pretty inelastic. And this puts if you are a pharmaceutical company who faces no price regulation, it's kind of like like we started off. It's like how high do you go? Like where do you even set the limit of what you're going to charge when generally your expectation is like most people, because their lives often depend on it, are going to be willing to pay the prices that you're that you're setting. I think that explains a lot of what's going on with like the EpiPen controversy with like Daraprim. I think there's other issues uh, around the edges. You know, some things definitely involving like generic drugs and like how we let those into the market are certainly all part of it. But I think what we have decided to do in the United States is give pharma a very um, a very positive situation in the United States. And what kind of results from that is we end up paying more for drugs. We probably end up subsidizing the rest of the world's drug research. So I think it's definitely true that the United States spending more on drugs is leading to better drug research, leading to better drugs for us and the rest of the world, the thing that um, might not sit as well is that we're also subsidizing the research for the for the rest of the world who's also using these drugs. Right. Well, and so, so two things. One, before people email in, it is true that if you zoom in on any one of these specific cases, right, a- any specific drug has a particular situation. And there's always some set of reasons. It can be patent reasons. Um, or it can be in the case of uh, the, the EpiPen, it, it's not that the drug is patented and nobody else can compete. It's that makers of rival similar devices have not been able to get FDA approval uh, for using them, whereas in, in Europe, the, the European health regulator has approved uh, several different ones of these. And if you had you know four different people selling these pens, it would be harder to, to sort of raise raise the price up. One sort of proposal in the mix in U.S.-EU trade negotiations is that we could have uh, mutual recognition of uh, pharmaceutical safety. Right? Basically, the United States would say, uh, you know, if the Germans say it's safe, it's it's like it's OK for us because we think Germans are pretty safe. But I think it does still go back to like the fundamental political economy 
sort of issue, which is that we have a lot of monetary subsidization of healthcare in the United States, right? So that's like Medicare for the elderly, Medicaid for the poor, um, a, a huge sort of tax benefit that really encourages employers to pay people partially in health insurance. Um, we have patent protection for pharmaceutical development. We have a very generous research and development tax credit. So there's a lot of things, right, both in direct government spending, in the tax code, on the business side, on the patent law side, that are like encouraging financial resources to flow into the pharmaceutical sector. And what they're doing in other countries is they're kind of like putting their hand on the other side of the balloon there to make sure it doesn't get too, too, too out of hand. And so they will say, well, okay, great. You know, if you use these financial and other incentives to do R&D and you came up with a medicine that is like incredibly useful, like we will pay you a lot of money for that medicine. But if you came up with a medicine that doesn't do very much or that um, is trivially cheap to make and you just happen to want to charge a lot of money for it, like we're not going to do that. That like the money is here to finance the most important aspects of it, not not the least important, right? And we've had a trend in the United States toward fewer new drugs being discovered over the past few years. And so more and more of the business model of the pharmaceutical industry has been this kind of market research type stuff, right? Because you would, if we were having this argument 20 years ago, right, what we would be talking about is, well, companies are reaping these like windfall profits, but it's all based on developing exciting new drugs. Uh, going through like the back catalog of generic remedies for obscure <laughs> diseases that it happens to be that only one company manufactures is like, that. that's a kind of research, but it's not like this sort of research that you know, I, I remember having this argument in the 90s and like public health experts explaining to me about like the important subsidy function. But if they're not actually discovering new drugs, the case gets really weak. The case does get weaker. So, I mean, like when I think of it from pharma's point, and I think you're right, there's definitely been like a slowdown in the innovation pipeline. And I think that's actually why you see like all this stuff happening at this particular moment where pharma's coming up with like fewer blockbuster drugs. So they're kind of like looking at, well, what if we tweak this and we repatent it? Like you see... All these techniques, you know, even like withholding information from generic competitors, like making them sue to get the information so they could actually make a generic version of their drug. I think a lot of like the the stories we see popping up right now kind of reflect the slowdown in new drugs and these blockbuster drugs. And so if you're a pharma company and you're looking to keep your margins up, you look at like, well, what else can I do in the interim um, to kind of keep my profits up and keep bringing in money to, you know, do whatever research for my next blockbuster drug. I think one of the kind of paradigms I always find helpful to keep in mind when like thinking about, um, you know, drug, how much we spend on drugs in the United States, because right now we spend a lot and thinking about if we and I think there's a lot of desire for the United States to have lower prices to kind of like have our prices look more like Canada's, more like the UK um, and what that would mean for the type of drugs we develop. And I think generally the economics research is pretty solid suggesting that one of the things we're always going to have is a trade-off between access and innovation. If the United States is putting more money, if there's generally just more money globally going into drug development, most economic research suggests we will have more innovative drugs. It might not be like as strong as it was like in the 90s, but generally there's a pretty strong um, correlation there. But at some point, you know, if you're making the most innovative drugs in the world, if you're curing cancer, but no one can afford it, like, what exactly is it that you're doing? Like, what is the point 
of the research that you're doing. And I think this is um, there's a health economist at Northwestern, Craig Garthwhite, who I interviewed about this a few months ago, and he was kind of really helpful in talking me through this and saying it's totally fine to say, like, I am willing to trade some innovation for more access. But that's essentially the kind of trade off you're always thinking about in pharma development, like this kind of balance between access and innovation. And you're kind of the two are balancing among each other, and you're kind of figuring out, like, what level of each is appropriate? And, like, wh- which one am I willing to give a little bit to get, like, more of the other? If you're anything like me, you know, sometimes you want a snack. And if what's around to snack on is junk food, you're going to eat junk food. And it's it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great and they're better for you. They're created with high-quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors. Flavors are sweeteners. So you can feel okay about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. they got great apples. they got great pears. Um, they also have some, you know, slightly more indulgent pretzel things in there that, that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. That's a good opportunity to to try out something new. Um, so right now you'll save even more because NatureBox is offering our fans 50% off your first order if you go to naturebox.com weeds. So you go to naturebox.com weeds. Uh, that way we get credit, you get 50% off your first order. naturebox.com weeds. What about the idea of prizes as more, like of prizes. A, more of a financial model? Yeah. So, so this is like back before patents were invented, Governments would sometimes, like Parliament in the sometime in the I think it was the 17th century, they said that they needed a better way to calculate uh, longitudes um, to you know make like English commercial shipping be awesome. So they passed a law and they were like, if someone can develop a method that you know there were some specifications, right. but like basically it was like we need a tool that you could take on a sailboat with you and figure out where where your boat is. Um, and if you work it out, like we'll just give you all this money. Um, so some people worked on it. Uh, someone came up with a pretty good solution. Uh, they got a big check, or I don't know if they had checks then. I, I shouldn't. I shouldn't overspeak. <laughs> a large they, sum of money. They got money, and then it was just. Then they just like published. Okay, here it is. Right. Part of the initial idea of the patent system was that instead of people keeping their projects like secret. Because before there were patents, if you came up with something, you wanted to make sure nobody knew how it worked uh, so they couldn't make it. And the idea of the patent system was to create a financial incentive, like a short-term, like three- or four-year monopoly to, like, go down to the patent office and say, here's this thing I invented. Here's how it works. Here's why it's amazing. So then, like, the idea was to broaden access, right? And it seems like, you know, we could do that, particularly in the the health field where, you know, in – in the field of like, I don't know, clothing, right? You don't want the government really trying to say, okay, this is objectively like an important fashion innovation that we want to create incentives for. You really want to let it be that just like creative people can be like, here's a way we could do dresses and then people decide if they like it or not. But in medicine, we really can, you know, not perfectly, but better than asking 12 random people on the street 
like assess what diseases impact large numbers mm -hmm. of people and like what treatments are effective and say you will get a lot of money for a very effective treatment for you know like a big problem and like not that much money for a really really marginal change whereas right now right now there's like a huge incentive to come up with something that the FDA will approve and that you can say, here's an amazing new cancer drug, and then you can send all the sales reps out and, like, talk doctors into prescribing it, even if it's not really right. particularly better. Yeah, well, and there's even – there's more incentive to do that because it's probably a lot cheaper to make a cancer drug that looks like the cancer drug you made, like, two years ago but is just, like, slightly better than the one that you made two years ago but is different enough that you can apply for a different patent. Um, you know, when I think of drug prizes – the big problems seem like they're getting tackled by pharmaceuticals. Like pharmaceuticals generally go after conditions that affect a lot of people, which is why you see, for example, like a wave of really good hepatitis C drugs because mm -hmm. you have millions of people who have hepatitis C and all of a sudden, for the first time ever, we have a hepatitis C cure, which is probably like, you know, when you think of big breakthrough drugs in the past few years, that's really the one that kind of stands out. You know, the way I see prizes factoring more into it is, you know, encouraging people to pursue the drugs that don't affect a lot of people, the drugs that, like, are not going to sell well. Like, you know, this is how you end up – it's kind of similar to how you end up with situations like Daraprim and Martin Chakrelli where you have these drugs that, like, nobody wants to make because, you know, there's just not a large market for it sure. and never will be. So when I think of prizes, I think more of these, like, areas of drug development that are, like, smaller diseases, places that, like, pharmaceuticals, like, generally just don't have a lot of um, economic interest. I mean, I don't know. I guess I don't know how much the government – when the government thinks of its priorities in terms of increasing population health, like how much they incentivize focus on these smaller diseases versus like the prize for curing cancer, which I imagine they would put a very large bounty on. But, you know, right. I feel like there is a decent amount of drug development towards these like big societal diseases and the places that get left behind are kind of these like smaller, more niche products where it's just like, why bother putting your R&D resources Well, but so there? it's like, as you said, right, there's two things, right? There's access and there's innovation, right? So the patent system produces very little innovation for like niche diseases because no matter how high a price you charge, you don't have that many customers. But it creates a big access problem for widely held diseases, right? So it's like the hepatitis C market is huge, so you do put R&D into it. But then when you have your blockbuster drug, you put these enormous unit costs up, right? Whereas if the government just like drove a dump truck full of money over right. to you for this hepatitis C breakthrough and then was like, now everybody gets the drug really cheap. Yeah. Like the pharmaceutical yeah. company still gets their dump truck full of money, but now everyone can actually get the treatment. I mean, someone still has to pay, right? There's no, there's no like free lunch, right? But there's, but the the patent system creates the technical term is deadweight loss, but it's like the opposite of a free lunch, right? It's like the people who would have paid like a reasonable sum of money for this drug that would have cured them, but they couldn't pay the like new super high price. Right. That you charged. And so like no profit was made by refusing to sell the person the drug for less. But in order to gouge the other customers, right. you have to screw some people. Right. But presumably, you know, if the government is doing this, they're doing this so they can spend less. Like, it do I don't see how these prizes end up a good deal for pharma or like what would be what well, is it, where is the point where you get them on board with like thinking, yeah, we'd rather have prizes than the patents? Well, because we have now. if I mean, it, it's hard to do the math, right? But you could imagine the exact same total amount mm -hmm. of money flowing 
like from government coffers into pharmaceutical companies, except through prizes, the unit costs are lower. So more people are getting the treatment. And because the prizes are segmented differently, less of the R&D effort is going into like copycat medicines and more is going into actual breakthroughs. I mean, I think a hard question about this is like, is it actually true that the amount of financial incentive is a key driver of the medical breakthroughs? Or is science just hard? I think science is hard. Right. I don't do a lot of science. My understanding is science. I think there's, I mean, I think there's both going on. Like, right. I, I think both of these are things that are happening. But I think that's a good point you raise. Like, is it the case, like, if there was more money in the pharmaceutical system, like, we'd all of a sudden have, like, you know, cancer cured 10 years ago or st- Getting rid of cancer, just a really fucking hard thing. Well, and if you look at, you know, so I, I, I mean, I, I used to talk to a lot of economists about this kind of thing. And they're very into, like, incentives and, like, charts and, and blah, blah, blah. But if, if you talk to, like, historians of science, I, I think they are skeptical that, like, the reason penicillin was developed when it was rather than 40 years earlier was, like, a lack of financial <laughs> incentives. It's actually just that like fundamental, not to say that like money is irrelevant, like obviously like a physics laboratory costs money, you know, to run experiments, like you need money. Um, But like the polio vaccine was not that lucrative. Um, I believe it was just given away. The most important medical breakthroughs actually had not that much money behind them. And I think pharmaceutical companies are not just like being dicks when they don't cure cancer. You know, like, they actually don't know how. Like, I do think it's true that the industry has reached this kind of, like, decadent phase where they're, like, screwing around rather than developing blockbuster cures. But that's not, like, by design, exactly, right? right? They, like, actually, they can't do it. They've, like, they don't know how. Well, the question is that are they not doing it because of like a lack of resources, like right. a lack of R and D, or are they not doing it just because it's like really hard and we don't have enough? Even if we had more in R and D, like we wouldn't have the ideas to actually like move things forward. Right, right, because um, science is hard. Science is really hard, harder than journalism, I think. No, journalism, journalism. <laughs> harder than podcasting. Speaking of journalism, yeah, and to an extent, global public health, indeed. Um, what is that? Matt? Talk about the Clinton Foundation, sure. Great foundation. Uh, well, so the Clinton Foundation has been, I guess, in the news on and off from its existence. But recently, there's been a barrage of stories based on emails that I think it was Citizens United or maybe it was Judicial Watch. One of these conservative groups had a big court battle and they got uh, the State Department to cough up a whole bunch of emails sort of that go between um, – Basically, emails between Doug Band, who was a Bill Clinton aide at the end of the Clinton administration and then became chief of staff at the Clinton Foundation, and Huma Abedin, who was a top aide to Hillary Clinton at the State Department, who also had some special arrangement where she could, like, work part-time at the foundation. Uh, so, so anyway, Band and Abedin were the point people for talking to each other about Hillary Clinton and Clinton Family Foundation business. I guess what I would say has happened is that because the media has convinced itself that there's definitely a huge corruption scandal involving the Clinton Foundation and Hillary Clinton's tenure as Secretary of State, they like rifle through these emails and anytime they find any communication, they write the story up like as if 
they have just uncovered some huge scandal. And then you read like five, six, seven paragraphs down into it. And like, there is no scandal. I think I think the most egregious example of this was a, an L.A. Times story where they were like, Clinton ties to African millionaire raise questions. And you're like, oh, <laughs> you know, it's like a classic like newspapering passive voice. And so they talk about this guy and they like lead with like some email about this guy and he wanted something. Um, and then they go into like this guy's history and like he seems he seems kind of shady and not to say even that he's a bad man, but he was a um, a Lebanese Nigerian businessman. And if you know anything about Nigeria or Lebanon, these are not like super like rule of law countries with like amazing legal, political, and economic systems. So a wealthy businessman <laughs> operating in these worlds, you know, he's involved in some, I, I guess you would say like questionable activities. Um, but then you're waiting for like the punchline where like Hillary Clinton does the favor for the guy and it just doesn't happen, right? And you've seen like a number of different instances of this where like stories will be written up where like Doug Band asked for something and Huma was like, no, we can't do that. Um, or Doug Band complained about how one donor's husband didn't also get invited to an event. And she wrote back, well, why was she invited? But they're written up as like, Aha, revealed, secret communications. Um, well, and I think it speaks to something. You know, one of our former coworkers, John Allen, who's a kind of great Clinton chronicler and has written books on her, kind of he wrote this piece for us last year, kind of basically detailing the Clinton rules for covering the press and how the Clintons often get quite different treatment. And I think, you know, you've written about this yeah. before. That it like feels like very one of the Clinton rules he writes about is like literally anything they do is like treated as like corrupt and suspect and like possibly just like Something is is wrong with what they're doing, even, you know, whether it's like whoever they're talking to or like launching like a global health foundation. And this like feels to very much like fit that Clinton rule to a T, right. this idea that like anything in a utero piece, I think yesterday or to yeah. sometime this this week in Weed's World, um, where, where you have Clinton Powell, who has a foundation that like does not get nearly the similar sort of treatment, um, even though these are like two big foundations founded by political figures, right. you see quite different, like, treatment of the two of so, them. So, like, specifically, Colin Powell was Secretary of State, and his son Michael was the chairman of the FCC. And Alma Powell, Michael Powell's mom and Colin Powell's wife, was running America's Promise, which had as its top-tier donors Enron and AT&T. Um, AT&T obviously has business in front of the FCC, like, all the time. Like, the FCC just regulates AT&T, basically. <laughs> That's, like, all they do. Um, I got an email from a former uh, uh, AT&T, you know, policy guy saying that I should not have characterized Michael Powell's uh, regulations as favorable <laughs> to AT&T. Um, I suppose you could always be more favorable. At any rate, <laughs> there was definitely a, a whiff of a stink around it. But I think nobody... To, to, like, John Allen's point, I think on a baseline level, when you see that the George W. Bush State Department went to bat for an American oil company when the government of India was trying to do something that would be terrible to its finances, we didn't look three layers deeper for an explanation of whether, like, Enron's donations to Colin Powell's wife's foundation like played some role in the State Department's decision to do this because 
You can like the fact that the George W. Bush administration took a worldview that was very favorable to American oil and telecommunication companies, or you can dislike it. Um, And you can certainly observe that the oil and telecommunications sectors were like broadly financially supportive of George W. Bush and his administration. But it's almost trivializing the like nature of American politics to characterize this kind of stuff as like transactional corruption. It's like a big – it was like a big picture policy decision right. that was made. And and one of the ways uh, left-wing people have been really harping on about this particular Clinton Foundation thing where they'll say, well, uh, Saudi Arabia and Bahrain and I think Qatar also were uh, financially supportive of the Clinton Foundation. Under Hillary Clinton's tenure, uh, arms sales to those countries uh, spiked enormously. It went up like two, three, four X. Um, and so that that is definitely true. That definitely happened. Um, and it's also definitely true that if you like talk to Saudi government officials, like they are pretty ready for Hillary um, and like not necessarily because they're enthusiastic about women's <laughs> role in public life, um, but because they think that she has like a pro-Saudi regional policy. Um, but if you think about like what was happening in the Middle East during the years in question, it used to be that the Gulf states would lobby for large arms contracts from the United States and that defense companies would lobby Congress to approve these sales because they like making money. Um, and pro-Israel groups would tend to lobby against the sales uh, because they want to maintain uh, Israel's qualitative defensive edge. Um, and what changed diplomatically is that the Gulf states and Israel have sort of quietly patched things up in the 21st century out of a common uh, dislike of Iran. And the Bush and then the Obama administrations helped Israel a lot with uh, their Iron Dome uh, sort of missile defense project, which gave them a whole technological capability that the Arab states don't have. Uh, Israel feels much more secure about the Arab states. The Arab states feel very um, skittish about Barack Obama's efforts at diplomacy with Iran. So they really, really want a lot of guns. So you have like increased demand for guns from – not guns, military equipment from the Gulf states and reduced anti-Gulf state lobbying from Israel. And like that's why bigger sales are getting approved. And again, 100 percent fair to say that like this is bad. Right. That like Barack Obama is too invested in his like 12 dimensional chess in the Middle East, if you want. But it's a real policy. This is like not like, you know, someone slipped someone 10 bucks and they changed their mind on it. Like this was like some of the most important foreign policy decisions that were being made during the Obama years. And they're not they're not like, you know, the talk of everyone's kitchen table, but they're also not like obscure if you like read news accounts of these events or just like ask Barack Obama, like when I did an interview with him and we talk about Iran briefly and he's like, talks about how he knows Gulf states are nervous about his policy and he's helping them with increased weapons sales, right? Like it's it's just normal. normal Right. But it's like you can pick which one you want to like latch on to. You see like a lot of Obama critics, like in the kind of this like Clinton rules, like fueling coverage of kind of the second narrative of, oh, look, mm-hmm. there's this donation and then there's like this arms spike. I think one of the ways this has become more challenging for the Clintons, and like I'm curious to see how you, hear how you think about it as like the person who's really been covering it for us, is the is the decision to basically scale down the Clinton Foundation when 
when if if Hillary takes office. Right. And it feels like a weird thing at this point in the election to say this thing that we think will not be OK if I am president. We will continue to run up until I become president. It just gives it like a kind of weird feel right like from the outside and I think I understand like what they're doing going into it like saying we're making this responsible decision and we're doing this handoff but I totally see how this kind of like spirals into like well if this thing is so fine like right. what is the need to like shut it down if Hillary takes well, and I really do think this goes back years to some like questionable decision making yeah. right which is that you know it's 2000, it's 2001. Bill Clinton is still in his mid-50s, right? So he's, he's, he's too old to just do nothing. He wants to do something with his time. Uh, his wife is a newly elected United States senator who has suffered a lot of personal slights and humiliations and, and sidetracked her own career and, and various other things. Um, even though when they were young, they were both like in the game, uh, sort of on, on the same level. And they have to decide what they want to do like with themselves and with their lives. And they just kind of say yes to everything, right? <laughs> just like when Hillary Clinton steps down as Secretary of State and like everybody knows that if she runs for president, she will probably be the Democratic nominee. No one can convince her. Like, look, Hillary, if you want to go do six-figure paid speaking engagements – as a former secretary of state and former senator, like that's fine. Lots of people do that in America. You will take like a little crap for it, but like it's fine. But also if you want to be president, <laughs> lots of people run for president. And if you want to run for president, you like go above and beyond, right? And she doesn't do it, right? She's doing mm -hmm. paid speaking engagements like into last spring, right? right? Bill Clinton wants to be this like fundraising impresario with this like world spanning charity and also help get his wife elected president. And like, I just think, you know, in the real world, there are choices that you have to make. There's like nothing really wrong with the Clinton Foundation. And there's nothing really wrong with the idea that Hillary Clinton should be president of the United States. But it's really challenging to wear multiple hats simultaneously. Um, you know, just like Michelle Obama could not be a hospital executive <laughs> while Barack was also president of the United States. Like, she just couldn't, right? And there's, like, a unfairness to that to her personally. And there's, like, a gendered unfairness to that, given, like, the whole historical trajectory of the universe. But it's still true. Right. It's still right? true. There's something different about having, like, a foundation that accepts multi-million dollar donations and makes investments in other places that becomes inherently more challenging when you are running to be president of the United States. Like you have a system which inherently like, you know, has donors, like you reward donors, like you have this thing that you're running that, you know, it involves a lot of people from like Clinton world and Clinton, Clinton land that, you know, like you said, like you didn't have to run. You could like kind of like usually I think in most situations you'd see a decision made between them or you have something like, you know, the Carter Foundation, which was founded it, you know, when right. no one's running for president anymore and, like, is doing wonderful things and eradicating guinea worm. And that's, like, a great contribution to the United States. But, you know, you don't see, like, the Carter Foundation coming under heavy scrutiny for the global health work it does because, like, no one at the Carter Foundation is is running for, running for president at this point. Yeah, and just running for president is special, right? I mean, even if, if Hillary was a senator from, from New York, even, <laughs> you know, but 
People don't like her. Everyone has partisan politics. Like, they would look into things. But, you know, you're a Democrat from New York, and you're basically voting with the leadership on stuff. And you sometimes break with the leadership on something related to, you know, uh, the New York state dairy industry, uh, Israel, <laughs> and maybe bank regulation. People would be like, yeah, that's <laughs> like that's what a senator from New York does, right? And if your husband is, like, running a weird foundation, like, that is an interesting fact about you and, and your life. Um, but the president is involved in everything. And it's just like it's a high bar. The stakes of there's no safe seats. Like people will be really upset if Hillary loses the presidential election and Donald Trump becomes president and like millions of people are rounded up by a new deportation force. And like, it turns out that like the crucial margin that like cost her one percentage point is that people feel that it was shady that she had a senior staffer who was also emailing with Doug band about seating arrangements. Like to me, like that is a bogus charge on her, but it is also true that like, most people running for president go further to try to insulate themselves from these kind of controversies, mm -hmm. whereas the Clintons seem to have the mentality that, like, they've had so much nonsense pinned on them over the years that, like, they just don't care. But it all. works both ways, right? Because you right. can see, like, let's say they went the like went as far as they could. It's like what – what would they face, like, like what shady, what things would seem, like, let's say, you know, they didn't do the Clinton Foundation. They were, like, you know, Bill was doing whatever he was doing with his life. If you think of kind of, like, the John Allen's, like, Clinton right. rules theory, then the idea is, well, like, whatever they did, like, we'd be seeing the exact same, like, oh, here's that shady thing they did. The shady thing would just be No, I mean, I, th I think it's more the opposite. It's more that, like, if Hillary Clinton in 2013 had said, you know what, I've been fighting my whole life for— children's health, for women's empowerment, for, you know, civil rights, for all these things. And looking at it, like the best way to advance those causes is to help my protege, Kristen Gillibrand, become president of the United States. Rather than like, I have to be president of the United States. I just think like an objective view of the whole situation, you know, would have led to the conclusion that like, not that Hillary Clinton is like an unacceptable president, but that in the universe, like there's millions of people live in the United States of America. There's lots of other people who the Democratic Party could have put forward who have like roughly the same policy ideas as Hillary Clinton. And something that I've noticed, uh, very different ideological trajectories. But if you listen to like left-wing people in English-speaking countries um, about Jeremy Corbyn in the United Kingdom, a lot of them will say, well, like, it's terrible. Like, the media is relentlessly hostile to him. Um, and more like center-left people uh, in the United States who, who, like Hillary Clinton, will say, oh, the media is relentlessly hostile to him. I've looked at those arguments, and, and to me, I think they're, like, both true. But media relations is a part of the job of being a leader in partisan politics, right? If your best defense of your favored leadership candidate is that the media is relentlessly hostile to them and they have no way of getting a fair shake, like, you should think, like, well, like, how much how much sense does that make? Like, part of Barack Obama's skill as a politician is that, like, people like him, right? That's, like, that's part of <laughs> politics. That is part of politics. It's a big part of politics. Right. And so if you're like, well, you know, the press is relentlessly hostile to Hillary Clinton, which I which I think is true. But like that's the question of like, well, why does she need to put herself 
forward then, right? And I think the fallback is to say, no, the press isn't relentlessly hostile to Hillary Clinton. The press is relentlessly hostile to women, right? Because like that changes it, right? Into like, okay, it may be a handicap, but it's a handicap we have to overcome. Uh, but I don't think the evidence is there yeah. for that. I think like as John Allen will say, yeah. like, like the press was very hostile to Bill Clinton, who is not a woman. <laughs> We, you, we talked about, We've about talked the about research. This research that it's there's not a lot of evidence, even though there's like a common perception that women are covered quite differently. The kind of best evidence, which comes from um, Jennifer Lawless at American, suggests that women aren't actually covered that differently. It, you know, the presidential race is like a exception often, right. like where you see a lot more focus on gender. But I, I think saying like, oh, well, it's just because women have a harder time running. That's a little bit of a harder argument to like hold up at this point. And, and if we look at the things that the Clinton camp complains about, right, they don't seem like they're gendered. Right. I think these complaints, I mean, I started with this whole rant. Like, I think they are correct that this Clinton Foundation situation has been scrutinized in an unfair way. But like that is clearly about the particulars of the family. Right. Right. That there is a longstanding belief dating back to uh, the Whitewater investigation and stuff that nobody even remembers now about Tyson chickens (laughs) that Bill and Hillary Clinton are corrupt and that they engage in systematically corrupt conflicts of interest. You can say that that charge is unfair. I think a lot of it is unfair. But like that is what it is about. And there is a level of selfishness. In like saying that like, well, the press is relentlessly hostile to us, but also the entire Democratic Party has to yoke its fortunes to our ability to navigate this ineptly through the media. Yeah, we have a good uh, yet again, another um, National Bureau of Economic Working Papers. This is a really interesting paper on blood blood levels um, from some researchers. Um, I'm just going to read the names. Anna Eisner, Janet Curry, Peter Simon and Patrick Vivier, who um, have been really studying an interesting data set in Rhode Island, um, looking at kids over time. And I think what's innovative about this particular paper is we often hear, particularly in Flint, we heard a lot about kids with really high levels of blood lead. And like we know, you know, from study after study that, you know, having a high level of lead exposure is very bad for cognitive development, leads to a host of issues. But what this study looks at is um, low blood lead levels, basically looking at what about these kids who have like just like a little bit of exposure? Like, you know, maybe you can just have a little bit. And it finds that the effects are are pretty profound, that even a very low amount of blood level exposure is, you know, really is already associated with delays in academic development by the third grade. One of the reasons I think this study is important is that we've made great strides reducing high blood lead levels. Like those have really fallen over the past few decades. But you still have these like lower trace amounts that I think because they're lower, they just get like less academic attention. They get less monitoring from public resources. And, you know, this paper is suggesting that even these like very small, low levels that, you know, we might usually like public health departments, they won't alert, like they won't monitor kids who have like low blood blood level exposure, that those are something we should really be worried about. That, you know, I think it seems like the academic research is increasingly gravitating towards the conclusion of there is like no amount of lead that is that is safe and like any amount of lead can possibly have a negative impact on on academic development. Yeah. And, and other things, I mean, so a study we, we talked about previously showed um, it, it did not look at test scores. It looked at uh, ADHD uh, diagnoses, but it found that the limit 
that they found was the limit of instruments Mm -hmm. to measure lead in the blood. But as far as they could tell, there was no endpoint, right? There was no safe level. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I think the main thing it does is it, it should change how you think about the cost benefit of like extreme sounding led proposals, right? So uh, Hillary Clinton came out with a proposal at some point in the campaign to like replace like all lead pipes everywhere, mm-hmm. right? And I think we looked at it and it, it costs like a ton of money, right? And it doesn't seem obvious in like the traditional like 10 microgram per liter framework mm-hmm. that that is a good idea. Um, lead in water pipes when sort of the water is properly treated, does not put tons and tons of, of lead into the water. Like it's it's not as bad as it sounds to, to some extent. But it turns out that even things that are not that bad are actually really, really bad. Yeah, like, the, like here's one stat from this where, you know, they basically find that reading scores fall one point for each one microgram per deciliter increase in blood lead levels. So right. we're talking about like tiny, tiny amounts that, you know, like are probably reaching like the edge of what instruments can measure. Um, and then, you know, another fact from the paper. Right, so if you yeah. went from nine, which is considered safe, to four, which is also considered safe, right. you would have a huge gain. You'd have a huge gain, scores. yeah. But right now, the way policy is structured, no effort is put into getting you from nine to four. There's some effort to nine to four at this point, but I'd say like if you're below five, uh-huh. you're like generally right. like when I when I was doing reporting on this earlier with Flint, like, you know, I talked to public health departments where like if someone's above 10, that's like real red right. alert. Like we really need to do something to remediate the house. Five to 10, like states of different policies, like some, you know, send in some kind of resources, some don't do anything. I didn't hear any like, you know, if you're under five, generally the assumption is like, well, that's right. that's fine. But I think this is also, like, a very hard problem to confront. Like, if we are going to accept the idea that, like, no amount of lead exposure is safe, like, the implications of what we would need to do to eradicate lead exposure are just, like, really giant and likely driving a lot of disparities in education and disparities in outcomes, you know, among right. among kids in the United States right now, even though we've, like, very significantly had reduced the number of situations where kids have, like, exceptionally high lead exposure. Right. So I, this is the, the other thing we, we should say about this, right, is that African-American population centers in older urban core areas have much, much higher levels of ambient uh, lead contamination than sort of newer suburban and and sunbelt type environments. So there's a very large racial gap in uh, lead exposure, right? Particularly at these lower levels where you're not doing like interventions for people. It's just like a known fact that like in the center of a city, Philadelphia, there's more lead around than in some far-flung area because there used to be a lot of cars driving around in the in the old leaded gasoline type days. And if you're testing people and they're coming up like four, you know, nothing, no one is doing anything about that. So potentially a lot of stuff that we like process through our social statistics as an achievement gap in educational mm-hmm. outcomes or disparities in, you know, disruptive behaviors in school or even violent crimes, stuff like that, are actually caused by mm-hmm. the fact that lead exposure is not by any means uniform uh, in, in the United States, right? So if you had, um, you know, remediation of these problems, a lot of things that seem not that closely related 
would, would go up because it wouldn't just be an average kind of lift, but it would very disproportionately improve uh, school performance for, for African-Americans and particularly for, you know, quote unquote, inner city um, t- type people. Although also we're seeing the populations of those cities change, which mm-hmm. may be a, a sort of a, a lever for policy change. Right. But I think the thing that's I mean, one thing that's so hard about lead is that it's so invisible yes. and that like particularly like at these levels, like we're talking about like a one point difference in reading scores per like one deciliter. And that certainly is going to matter for outcomes, but it's like so hard to kind of tether the two together, right? Like it's not like some kids eating like lead paint and then like they're Uh acting out in class, which would be like a very clear um, kind of connection. Like these are things like it's like more ambient or like, you know, there's paint flakes around. We're not necessarily talking about cases where kids are like massively behind grade level or experiencing like huge learning deficiencies. They're just like slightly behind where they might have been if there had not been lead. And I think that's one of the things that makes that makes mobilizing around lead exposure and like these sort of things so hard when you don't have like a flint situation where the water is like the wrong color and like right. things are very clearly like smelling wrong. It's like it's a very invisible problem. And that makes it like very easy to kind of write off as not there. And, and so like you see this paper and it's like, you know, it's I think it's very good that we are learning that like no lead is acceptable. But it's also like, where does it, where does it leave us? Like, what, what, what do you do with this information? Well, now? so I mean, I would say, particularly if you're a parent, right? Like, you should look in your yes. community, right? And you should look and like look on the parks department website or call them and like ask if they have tested the soil <laughs> in children's play areas and look and see if like in DC, DC Parks and Rec has uh, impermeable lead safe surfaces <laughs> over all children's play areas, um, which is uh, the right thing for them to do uh, because they did not have the financial resources to undertake like a billion dollar replacement of all of the dirt uh, throughout the city. Um, but lots of places don't do that. I mean, when, right. when I was on vacation in, in Maine, you know, playgrounds are not like that. On the other hand, it's very unlikely that rural coastal Maine <laughs> has like high levels of, of lead contamination. Um, but like, I don't know, I, I have not personally visited every urban playground in America. Um, but like, I'm sure they are not all um, have like treated impermeable surfaces. <laughs> I bet there's a lot of dirt lying around and like, you should probably try to get them to not do that. Um, it, it's like, even if it's not that bad, like it's, it's not great, right? you know, um, small things. And like, and people normally with their children, when it's, when it's like not a social effect, you know, they take this very seriously, right? Mm-hmm. Even if like letting your kid sit in front of the TV for X hours is not going to like have like a devastating impact. Right. You know, people like they try, they're like, let's sit there, let's read the stupid picture book, you know, because, you know, people care. Right. Um, but, you know, what's I, the message of like this paper and of, of a lot of the research on this is that like what's happening in your community that's like beyond your personal control mm-hmm. has a lot of influence. Um, and I do think that, you know, if people make a fuss, like they will do something. See, I don't know. I'm less optimistic. I mean, it's just such a big, pervasive problem. That's like, where do you even, if you accept that, like, no level of lead exposure is appropriate, then, like, I'm talking massive, massive changes. Well, I, I would put it the other way. I, <laughs> more, like, actually, even small steps oh, to reduce okay, lead yes. exposure will have important benefits. That is a more, that is a more optimistic outcome than my, where we're unable to get rid of lead in America. Exactly. So take that cheery thought home with you. As you tell your friends to listen to the weeds, as you email them, Facebook them, tweet them, review us, snap them, I don't know, 
Snap Pam them, chat. gram them, gram them, all all your social social media networks. Um, so yeah, so so thanks thanks for listening. Thanks to our uh, producer Fim Shapiro. Thanks to our sponsors, and uh, we'll see you next week. See you then. <laughs>